I heard a story recently about a young man who was talking to his mom about his living arrangement. And in his living arrangement, there was a young lady who happened to be living in the house that he was living in there, and his mom was pretty concerned about it. As you can imagine, if you're a mother in the room, maybe you would have been concerned about it too. And the mom said to her son, she said, I just don't know if this is the greatest arrangement. I'm not sure that you actually need to be living in a house there with a girl that you're not married to. It just seems like, you know, maybe some bad things could happen and you might kind of fall to temptation. And he said, no, mom, you don't understand. This is totally platonic. It's just a friendship. This is really just about a living arrangement. You know, we just share the rent and that's all that this is. Nothing improper is taking place. And so you need to know that. And she was like, well, I just, I don't know. And so she, she says, I, I want to come and visit you for dinner one night. And so he says, yeah, come on over. You, what you'll see is you'll see that we're just friends. You'll see that, you know, there's nothing inappropriate happening. And so she comes over to dinner, and when she walks in and she sees this girl, she says, wow, okay, this girl is really cute. My son would think this girl is really cute, and there's no way that if they're living in this house, everything is above board. There's no way that if it's the two of them in this home together that this is, you know, proper on all fronts, but she decides to give her son the benefit of the doubt. And so she's sitting there at dinner that night, and she's talking to her son and to his roommate. And so he's, she's talking there, and she's asking you know, questions, and she's trying to be careful about how maybe judgmental she is about this relationship and the setup and how these things are working. And so at one point, she sees that the girl has on a really nice watch. And so she says to the young lady, she says, oh, I love your watch. I've actually been wanting to get a watch very similar. Can I see it? And so the girl takes off her watch and hands it to the mom. And the mom looks at it, and they continue on in the dinner. A few days later, uh, the, the girlfriend or the friend girl, whatever she is, she comes to the guy and she says, listen, I, I want to be careful, but I haven't been able to find my watch since your mom came for dinner. Now, I'm not saying she stole it, but I am saying that she had it in her hands and now I don't have it and I can't find it and I don't know where it's at. And so the, the son says, okay, you know, I'll, I'll deal with it. I'll, I'll talk to mom and see what I can find. So as, you know, any strong son would do, he decides to send his mom an email. And so he sends his mom an email and he says, mom, listen, I want to be careful. I don't want to accuse you of stealing the watch, but I do want to tell you that she hasn't had the watch since you had it in your hands when you came over for dinner. And so if you know anything about where the watch is, I'm really going to need you to return it. The mom, as any strong mother would do, responds to her son's email and says, dear son, I'm not saying that you're doing anything improper with the girl that's living in your house, but if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found it on her pillow several nights ago. I'm just going to let that one land in the room for a moment. Some of you still haven't quite gotten that, and you're going to need to ask someone nearby why that's so funny. But we all know what it feels like to get caught in sin. Now, maybe that's not your story. Maybe the story that I've just told is not how it happened to you. Maybe it's never been anything quite like that. But we know what it feels like to get caught in sin, to be a part of something that we shouldn't have been a part of, to do something that we shouldn't have done, 
And somewhere along the way, we are confronted with our sinfulness. We are confronted with the idea that we have done something improper that we should not have done. We know what it feels like. Now, maybe it wasn't you know, a living arrangement in the house, but maybe it's that we're driving down the road and we've driven down this road any number of times and we know where we can go certain speeds no matter what's posted on those little white annoying signs and we know how fast we can go around certain corners and we're totally fine until we look in the rearview mirror and we see the blue lights. It's in that moment that we're caught It doesn't matter how many times we've gotten away with it, in that moment, we're guilty, and we know it. It, It's this idea that in our lives, we tend to have a pattern of behavior, a pattern of activity that we tend to get away with more often than we get caught, but in the moment that we get caught, we know the sinking feeling. We know that feeling in our gut. We know what happens when our bodies respond to our guilt and our shame and the condemnation that we feel and experience when the blue lights show up or the question is asked or the evidence is found. And so we know what it feels like in those moments. I've experienced those in my life. I know what it feels like. And now, even in moments when I'm not guilty, sometimes I I react in similar ways because what happens is I'm driving down the road and I look down at my dashboard about the time that I passed the cop and that little white annoying sign tells me that it's 65 and I'm doing, you know, 68-ish. And so, you know, I know that I'm actually by the letter of law guilty and so when I see him with the blue lights on later, I assume he's coming to get me. He ends up getting someone else and what happens? I know you won't admit it because it would make you out to be a terrible person. You are grateful that someone else was a worse transgressor than you were. You are grateful that that guy's taillight was out and that caught the officer's attention. You're grateful that someone else went by faster than you did so that even though you are guilty, someone else was guiltier than you and you seem to have gotten away with what you were guilty of. We know what that feels like. It's a sick feeling and today I want us to kind of lean into that sick feeling. I want us to think about, to feel, to remember those moments when we have been in that situation. As we continue our story this summer that we've been in on the life of David, we look at a man who had a lot of highs. He was anointed to be king. He killed Goliath. He responded in incredible ways, filled with integrity when Saul was trying to kill him. He has this son that he's handing off leadership to at the end of his life, and he sets him up for success. We see these incredible stories of the life of King David, and man, we, we look at that story and we go, wow, that's what I want to be like. That's what I want to do. I want to kill giants. I want to be used by God in great ways. But we also see a story in the life of David that is not so great. And it's that sinking in your gut kind of feeling. It's that moment that even as we read it, we may not have experienced it exactly like this, but we can relate to so many of the emotions that David is experiencing. And I want us to read, beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles with you, if you've got an app on a smartphone or a device of some kind, you can follow along. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, most of what I'm going to read today is from the ESV translation of Scripture, English Standard Version. It's just one of my uh, primary versions that I, I utilize a lot. But here's what it says, beginning in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. 
But David remained at Jerusalem. That's important. We'll come back to that. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. The first thing that we need to know about sin is that it usually happens when we are not dot, dot, dot. David was on his roof. He was really on his couch at a time when kings were supposed to go out to war. And not only do kings go out to war, but they lead people into war. So instead of him going to annihilate the Ammonites, say that three times really fast, he sends Joab and he sends, it says, all of Israel. Now, this would have just been the fighting men of Israel, but he sends them out to battle. And the only people that are really left are those who could not fight. So they would have been like the elderly, the children, and the women, and those who were serving King David. So there would have been a palace staff. There would have been the women, the children, and the elderly, potentially, if they couldn't serve in battle. And those are the only people left in Jerusalem where David's at. This is a, king, this is a springtime when kings go out to war. And where do we find King David? Not even first do we find him on the roof. We find him on his couch. Now, I would say to you, because it's been true in my life, that when I fall into sin, I can normally trace it back to just a pattern of not being where I'm supposed to be, not doing what I'm supposed to do, not hanging out with people that I should be hanging out with. And so what I find myself, if I trace it back, if I have enough you know, introspection and self-awareness, if I were to trace back the times that I have fallen into sin, I can go back and find that I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I wasn't hanging out with people I should have been, and I wasn't in places, or I wasn't doing the things that I should have been doing. And that's what we find here with King David. He should have been at battle. And, and here's what I know. I know this for a fact. David at battle may have been guilty of some other sin, but he would not have been guilty of this sin because Bathsheba wouldn't have been there. Now, that doesn't mean that we should live our lives in fear that we have to always go, wow, if I, if I take this step, I may be guilty of this sin. If I take this step, I may be guilty. No, that's not the way that we should live. But it is the idea that when I'm where I'm supposed to be, the tools and the tricks and the traps of the enemy aren't nearly as effective because he's got to find something else to entice me. Because when I'm doing what God called me to do, when I am living in such a way that God is honored by my life, when I am fulfilling the purpose of my life, the way that the king should have been out in battle, the enemy's going to have to do something to distract me while in battle and not just do something because I'm idle, right? Idle hands, idle hearts. If I'm not doing anything, if I have no purpose, if, I, if my calendar's not full of things that fulfill me, if I'm not really working on something that seems to be about a greater mission, a greater thing in life, then often I'm just sitting around waiting on bad things to happen. I'm just sitting on my couch. I'm just sitting in places I shouldn't be sitting. I'm just talking to people I shouldn't be talking to. I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing because I've got no greater story that I'm a part of. I've got no greater calling, no greater purpose that I'm actually living in the midst of. So the first thing is that sin usually happens when I am not, dot, dot, dot. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but I know for me, if I'm not careful, that's the kind of place that I find myself in when I am susceptible to temptation. Now, a lot of times, people look at Christianity, and they think that Christianity is just a bunch of rules like do's and don'ts. Now, there are definitely some do's and don'ts in Scripture, but it almost sounds cliche to say this, but it's not religion, it's relationship. It is this idea that I am in relationship with God. 
And so while I'm in that relationship, I am learning to live in such a way that honors the relationship that we live in. It's the context of marriage that I reference a lot and I, when I'm talking about that. And if you're single or you're a student, you may not fully grasp this if you've not lived in it. But for those that are married or those that are dating in a really serious relationship, you understand that within the context of that relationship, I may not do everything perfectly, but really a, a sinful thing in the relationship, a breach between this relationship, not sin towards God, would be something where it doesn't honor the relationship, where I do something to betray the other person. I do something that wouldn't reflect on them well. I do something that is not kind of matching up what I'm saying about how I feel about them and what I'm actually doing to reflect that. And so in that relationship with God, it's not that I'm always worried about the do's and don'ts. It actually is that when I, I get comfortable in my own skin in relationship with God, that I worry less about do's and don'ts, and I worry about the context of relationship. I, I desire to please God. I desire for God to use me. It's not about keeping a bunch of rules. But here's what you should know, and, and, and many of us do know this, that in the Bible there are some thou shalt nots. There are some things that are explicitly mentioned that we should not do. And maybe that frustrates you. Maybe you feel like that's something that should be left out and we should all kind of be left to our own you know, wisdom and discernment to try to figure out how to live. But I don't think that that's the wisdom of God and the way that he constructed this. Because again, as a parent, and for those that are parents, you know that there are times when you have to keep your kids from doing something that they really want to do. Now, if you're a, a kid in the room, and I use that term very broadly, so if you're, you know, probably maybe late grade school to middle school in this room, up to high school, even college, or maybe you're still a young adult, but you feel like your parents still have, you know, some level of influence over your behavior, your actions, or they can still tell you what to do or not to do in, in different aspects of your life, there are probably times, and even those that that may not fit, you remember this, where your parents said, no, don't do that, right? I have to tell my kids that from time to time. No, no, don't do that. And they don't understand it. And they said, no, no, I, I want to do it. I, I see it. I desire it. I want to do it. And so I'm going to do it. And I'm like, no, you're not. There are repercussions if you do those things. Why? Because I want to teach them about the wisdom of behavior. I want to help keep them from things that would harm them. And I want to set them up to live in the full effects of things that will bless them, Right? And so as parents, I have to, as a parent, I have to understand that sometimes I have to tell my kids no. And if you're a, 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 again, I use the word kid, but I'm not trying to insult anybody here. If you're a kid and your parents tell you no and you go, wow, they're just trying to be like a killjoy here. They're just trying to keep me from doing things I want to do. Well, maybe so. But there may be something that you can't see that they see, and that's why they've said it. And so we have to respect the authority in our lives, those that tell us no, because they are the ones that are helping to usually keep us out of those thou shalt not places. They're helping us to be in that, uh, to be away from those places where we should not dot, 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 right? We should not go to that place because they understand that in that place, there's some things that we may need to stay away from. They help us to stay away from certain people. We think those people are so, um, they're so cool, but they're trouble. And moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and people with wisdom in our lives, they may say, you need to, you need to watch out for that one, right? There were, there were people that I dated hypothetically earlier in life that my mom hated, right? And I, I didn't understand it because, man, that girl was so cute and she was, we were fun. We had a lot of fun together and my mom, I don't like her. There's something about that girl. You need to watch her. 
I don't like it. There was one time a girl called our house when we were a little bit younger, and my mom was pretty, you know, she was pretty strict in, like, you know, helping make sure that we understood, like, how, how men should treat women and how women should treat men. And so this girl called our house one time, and she was pretty direct in, like, not wanting to talk to mom, but wanting to talk to, um, you know, one of my, my mom's sons. And, and so... Um, Mom did not take too kindly to this young lady and the way that she was talking to her and like with a lack of respect. And she was like, you know, is, is so-and-so home? And, and she said, uh, well, that's none of your business. Uh, but uh, she said, well, I, I want to talk to him. And she was like, okay, well, um, not right now. Uh, and she said, well, I'll just call him back. She was like, no, if he wants to call you, he will call you. You can leave your number with me. Like there's this idea that my mom felt like there were certain people we should stay away from. Now, looking back, I do see that potentially some of those people would have led, you know, hypothetically, my brother into a life of sin. <clears throat> but you understand what I'm saying, that there was an authority that had been placed in my life to help put up guardrails around me to keep me from danger. And so I've got to respect that God's word is a place of authority that is helping to construct guardrails for me to keep me out of places of danger. And so that's what happens when we read the story. David sins because he's not where he's supposed to be. And he sends Joab to war, and then he sends some messengers to go and get Bathsheba. Usually when I am in a place of sin, I am not man enough to do it myself. I'm trying to find other people or intermediaries or other things that will cushion me from the actual sinful act because I know that I should be going to war and I know I should not be bringing Bathsheba to the palace. And so I find other ways to do that. And that's what we see here in the story of David. So a little while later, David or Bathsheba, after they, they've had this relationship, Bathsheba sends word to David and said, hey, I'm pregnant. And so David's like, okay, wow, uh, this has escalated pretty quickly. So I've got to do something here to fix this. And so David sends for Uriah the Hittite, who is Bathsheba's husband. He's off to war with Joab, where David should be, reminding you. Uh, and so he says, hey, Uriah, I want you to come back to the palace. Now, there is no evidence here that he should have called Uriah back. We don't know that Uriah is a guy that he would have brought into a lot of meetings with him, uh, especially when all of the other men were at battle. But he sent, sends for Uriah. Uriah comes home, and David says, hey, how's the battle going? He gets an update. I'm about to pull this completely off of the uh, chair here. He gets the update, and he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Take some time. You know, kind of you got some furlough here, some R&R. Go to your house. Hang out with your wife. You know, enjoy the day, and you'll go back to war in a day or two. Uriah goes and lays by the door of David's palace there and refuses to go and spend the night with his wife. Obviously, David's trying to set this up to cover up his own sin. The next morning, he confronts Uriah and says, man, what in the world? Why did you not go to your house? Like, you're home from war. You should go and hang out with your wife. He says, no, no, no. My brothers are at battle. There's no way that I would enjoy being back home, so I will stand here and stand guard for the king, if nothing else, if I'm not going to be in battle. David gets frustrated right? Because this is what happens. What should have been looked at as Uriah's faithfulness, what should have been looked at as something to be commended in Uriah, David gets defensive about it. Because when we're living in sin, we can't see the benefit and the positives in other people. We get defensive about our own mistakes and our own lifestyle choices. And so now we attack other people, not because they deserve it, but because we are defensive of, out of our own guilt. And so what David does is he gets Uriah drunk and so then he says, okay, now that you're feeling good, why don't you go back to your house? We'll see you in the morning, buddy. <laughs> David goes to bed, 
Uriah, even in his drunken stupor, goes and lays by the door outside of David's palace. Then the next morning, David gets word, and he is so frustrated that Uriah would not follow through on the plan that would have helped to cover up David's sin. And so he says, okay, listen, that's fine. Thanks for coming home. Thanks for giving me an update. Thanks for guarding the door. Really appreciate that. Thankfully, nobody got in last night while you were laying there drunk. But, you know, here's what I want you to do. I want you to here, take this letter back to Joab, and uh, just, you know, it's just an update from me to him. Don't read it on the way back. That would be really bad news for you. So just make sure you get this back to Joab. And so he gets back, and he gives Joab the letter, and Joab reads it, and here's what it says. It says, wherever the fighting is the worst, put Uriah right there. And then when it gets to its absolute, like it couldn't get any worse right there in that spot, pull everybody else back and let Uriah die. Can you imagine writing those words on paper? Can you imagine? It probably would have been that David wouldn't have written it himself. He would have recited it and someone in his service would have written it down. Can you imagine saying those words out loud and making someone else write words where you are sentencing a man to death through no fault of his own and only to cover up your own sin? I cannot imagine what Joab is thinking as he's reading this letter. Why would King David do this? What has Uriah done? He seemed to be a good soldier. I'm not sure why he would call him all the way back. I'm not sure when he came back to us why he would have this letter. I don't know what King David is doing, but I will honor the king's wishes, and so I will make it happen. And sure enough, that's what Joab does. He puts Uriah right at the pinnacle, right at the point of the army's attack, and when the fighting gets the fiercest, he pulls everyone back, and Uriah is left to die. I don't want to over-dramatize this story anymore, but can you imagine being Uriah and fighting beside your brothers and standing there against your enemies, and all of a sudden you look around and realize that you have missed a retreat call? You look around and the men that were standing beside you defending your honor as you defended theirs, you look beside you and no one is left to fight with you through no fault of your own. I don't know that he would have had this thought. It's just the way my brain works when I read stories like this. I imagine that as he is killed, however that came to him and he falls to the earth, there may have been a moment in his mind when he thought he had messed up. Maybe there was a signal that I missed. Maybe being gone two days didn't make me as sharp as I should have been. And maybe he felt like it was his fault. And little did he know this was all because David should have been at war, but was walking around on the roof. I think if you were to roll this story back and you were to zoom out, like if you don't just take the details of this story, but you really zoom out of, 2 Samuel 11, and you say to David before verse 1, when he is giving Joab the marching orders, if you were to say to David, hey, David, you want to kill one of your soldiers this week? No. Okay. Do, do you want to lose influence with Joab? No. Okay. Do, do you want to completely ruin the lives of your children and your grandchildren for generations to come, even long after you're gone? No. And yet, all of those things happened because David 
fell in to sin. And instead of confronting sin, instead of repenting of sin right away, what David did is he tried to cover up sin, and that cover-up ended up costing him way more than he ever thought. But when you zoom out, a lot of times you don't think sin is sin. When you're right in the moment, not when you zoom out, but when you're right in the moment, sometimes you can almost justify what you've done. Pastor Tim Keller says this, sin never feels like sin in the midst of it. David didn't feel like a sinner, he felt like a lover. When he gave the order for Uriah to be killed, he didn't feel like a murderer, he felt like a general. Because in the moment, it doesn't always feel like sin, but when we zoom out, we realize that sin is a walk on the roof when you're supposed to be at battle. It's an innocent conversation with someone who isn't your spouse. It's a glance that turns into a stare, or it's a drink that turns into ten. Sin never starts out in a way that we think it's sin. And so we have to have this incredible wisdom that understands that there is a progression of the decisions that we make in our lives. There's an old cliche almost, and I use that word lightly, but it's, it's because I've heard it so many times in my life. And even having heard it, I don't always live by it. But it says that sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. But in the moment, it's just a walk on the roof. It doesn't feel like murder. It doesn't feel like manipulation. It doesn't feel like cover-up. It doesn't feel like cursing the generations of your family to come. It's just a walk on the roof. Except that it's not. So here's what happens. Uriah's dead. Bathsheba mourns, and then she comes and moves into the palace to become David's wife. And then Nathan shows up. Nathan's this incredible guy. I, he, he's kind of like David's pastor. He's the prophet, but he speaks with such clarity into David's life that when I read this story, I, I, I kind of long for these kinds of people in my lives. It would hurt. It would sting a little bit, but I think these, these people play important roles. And so this is what it says, beginning in, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, one little female lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, I get that that's a really big stretch. Like, that's a, that's a big deal. But if you've got a dog and you call it like your grand dog or like it's your, you know, it's a member of the family or like you, you know, like you feed it the same time that you feed the family because it's like family mealtime, then you understand the sentiment here that's going on in this story, okay? So here's what he's saying. He, he treats it almost like it's a member of the family. It is a valued possession, a valued member of their family. Verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Listen to this, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And listen to verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is a powerful story of confrontation. It's also a powerful glimpse into our response towards sin. 
Because David, as he's interacting with Nathan, as Nathan is laying out this hypothetical story that David doesn't understand is, is hypothetical. It's like that zoom out kind of moment. When we take, you know, the, the, the names have been changed to protect the innocent, or in this case, to protect the guilty. Like, it's this, I'm going to tell you a story, David, and what you don't realize is that you're the main character. And so I'm going to change a few of the details. And when I tell you, you're going to respond the way that you should have responded in your own story, but you didn't. And so here's what I'm going to do, David. I'm going to tell you this story, and at the end of this story, you're so angry because you realize how guilty that rich man was. You realize that he should never have taken something that wasn't his. You realize that, you know, the rich man had just about anything that he could have wanted, but the poor man just had this one thing. He just had this one thing, and yet the rich man came and took the one thing that he had, even though he had all of these riches to pull from of his own. And David says, man, you tell me who this guy is. He's guilty. I will punish him, and I will make sure that he has to make restitution for everything that he's done. And Nathan turns the mirror around and says to David, Why is it so easy for us to judge the sins of others as we sit guilty of our own sins? Like, why, why is it so easy for us? I mean, this is, this is it's, it's a hotbed, it's so sensitive right now, but why is it so easy for us when we hear that the Supreme Court's changed the laws of the land and now we're worried about how all of the sanctity of marriage has now been violated when in our own marriage, we're abusive towards our spouse. We're addicted to pornography to violate the covenant that we've made with one another. We have broken the covenant that we made in divorce without biblical grounds to do so. We just fell out of love. And we're worried that others are the ones that are going to betray the sanctity of marriage, and yet we who call ourselves Christians don't see that we are part of the problem too. Because just as they are guilty of sin, we are guilty of sin. You, you take it away from something as sensitive as that story right now, and you just go to other scenarios within the lives of the people around us. Why is it so easy for us to look at others and we say, yeah, no doubt they're guilty. How in the world could that guy make that decision and lose his family? How could that girl allow addiction in that way to cost her everything in her life? And we sit on our couch as David sat in his. We go and walk on our roof. And we make decisions that continue to push us further and further and further away from the heart that God created in us to beat for him with purity and holiness and righteousness that reflects his nature. Why is it easier for me to sit across the restaurant and judge the drunk than to realize the gluttonous behavior at my own table? And Nathan lays this story out to David and David is so quick to judge someone else for their sin, even as he stands guilty of his own. 
As I was preparing, I ran across these two quotes that I think illustrate this point so well. Pastor Jonathan Martin says this, one good way to know that you're reading the Bible wrong is if it becomes a sword that stabs your friends instead of a sword that pierces you. And Anne Lamott says this, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. We laugh because it hurts. We go, yeah, God hates the same people that we do. Uh, Nope. I'm just a sinner. Putting up my defense mechanism and casting stones at those I perceive to be guilty forgetting that Jesus knelt in the dirt beside me and refused to let him stone me. It's just easier to throw rocks at them than to remember that I was stooped in the dirt myself. It stings, it hurts, but we are convinced sometimes that God has called us to be the Nathan for everyone that we know. We're the person that God has called to illuminate all sin in every person that we know. That's our calling. That's our role. When the reality is, I think that we need more Nathans in our own life who will help us to illuminate the sin that we have. Look at the end of Nathan's confrontation with David, continuing in verse 7 where we left off. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And listen to this. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Some translations say, if this wasn't enough, I would have given you more. Verse 12 says this, for you did it in secret. But I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the Son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Verse 15 says, then Nathan went to his house. I've always wondered why verse 15 was in there. I kind of think this is just Nathan kind of dropping the mic. It's like, hey, here you go. I'm done. My job here is done. You're guilty, and we all know it, right? I don't know why that's in there, but here's the two truths that I see in this last passage of Scripture here. David immediately repents when he's confronted with his own sin. Now, in the story, when the hypothetical lamb thing, like he he sees that as someone else, and he's quick to pass judgment, but when Nathan says to him, you're the guy. No, this is you. This is your story. This is your sin, and here's what's going to happen Here's what you need to know about God's mercy. He gave you everything you could have ever imagined, and if it wasn't enough, he would have given you more. And yet it wasn't enough for you. Immediately, David repents. We read right there, I think it was in verse uh, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And watch this, this is the second thing. God immediately forgives. He says, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. Now this is important for us to remember Because sometimes, again, we almost think that God's grace doesn't extend to our sin. We think, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was an affair. It was murder. It was manipulation. It was kind of misusing the throne of the kingdom. We just heard that a child is going to die. We just heard that generations will be cursed because of the decision that David made. But as soon as David says, I have sinned against God, 
The mouthpiece of God in David's life says, and God forgave you just now. You're not going to die. Now, this idea of him dying a physical death, he, he would die a physical death later in his life. We actually read that a few weeks ago. But this you shall not die connects to the verse that many of us can quote, John 3, 16. Those who believe in him shall not die but have eternal life, shall not perish but have eternal life. It's this idea that he's saying, listen, you're going to live with God. You're right. God forgives you and you shall not die. You shall be in eternal relationship with God. But here's what happened. There was a consequence for David's sin. There are two things that happen with sin every time. If you tell a little white lie or you do something humongous, there are two things that happen. One, there is a need for atonement. There's a need for payment in the spiritual realm. And the second things that happen, the second things that happen, second thing that happens is there are consequences. Some of those consequences are on earth. Some of those consequences are related to number one and the spiritual consequences that are required for sin. If you read the Old Testament, what you see is that when you sinned, you had to come up with your own atonement. You had to be the one to provide the sacrifice and bring that to the tabernacle and bring that to the priest and say, here is the justification for number one. I've sinned, and here's what I need to bring to make sure number one's taken care of. I need an atonement. And so here's this, here's this lamb. Here's these birds, depending on what I've done. There's some consequences. If I don't make atonement, I can't live forever with God. And beyond that, you know, there's some other earthly consequences. Now, here's what Nathan was saying to David. He said, listen, as soon as you repent, God took care of number one on his own. He sent Jesus. You don't know that yet. I'm inferring here from the story because we know the narrative of Scripture. But he's saying, here, here's the deal. Jesus is going to come and he's going to die on the cross. And him dying on the cross and shedding his blood covers what you just admitted to. He's got number one. He provides the atonement for this. But there are earthly consequences for your actions. The sword that you have used to expand the kingdom, that sword will now reside in your house for generations to come. And the child that was born out of this sinful relationship is going to die. Here's what I would love to tell you, that if you have sinned or made some mistakes, that you would not have to pay for those mistakes. Here's what I can promise you. You don't have to provide the atonement for that mistake. You don't have to make yourself right before God. He does that. But you may have to pay the consequence. If you're speeding, you're going to have to pay a ticket. If you do something illegal, you're going to have to go to jail. You can love God with all of your heart, but if you break the law, you've got to pay the consequence for that sin. And so we see that in this interaction. But here's what I want us to know, that David, immediately when he's confronted, he repents of his sin. And I want us to look very quickly as we close at the four responses that humans give to sin. Four responses. When we're confronted with sin, we all do one of these four things. The first is this, we hide it. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? God comes looking for them after they've eaten of the fruit of the tree, and he says, hey, where are you? And they're over in the bushes because they've realized they're naked. And they're hiding, believing that they can hide from God what they've done that they know was wrong. The second thing that we do is we rationalize it, right? We go, well, it's not quite that bad. I mean, yeah, I mean, I shouldn't have done it, but, you know, other people do way worse things. It was just a little bit of this. It was just a little bit of that. It wasn't, I didn't get that far. I just did this. And we rationalize what we've done. We're all guilty of that. The third thing that we do is we blame someone else for it. Well, I wouldn't have had to do that if you knew who I lived with. 
You know, I wouldn't have had to go that far if you understood the work scenario that I'm in. We find someone else to blame. Again, that's what Adam did to Eve. God, God's addressing Adam. Hey, what happened? Adam says, the woman that you gave me, it's, it's kind of her fault, it's kind of your fault. You gave her to me, and she's the one that gave me the apple or the fruit there. And, and then he asks Eve, and she was like, well, the snake gave it to me, and we're just passing the blame. We're finding someone that can be at fault other than us. One through three is something that we all are guilty of in some way or another. But number four is the actual only response that we need to repent. It's what we see in the story of David. It's what we understand to be the required response of any sin in our lives that we should repent. I want you to look at those. Which one do you tend to gravitate towards? Are you a hider? You know, when my kids do something wrong, sometimes they take the evidence and like hide it under their bed and we find it like three Saturdays later when we're cleaning their room. We're like, how did this get under here? And they're like, I don't know, right? Or do we rationalize it? You know, like when, when, when my kid's getting in trouble and I'm getting on to Cooper, he's like, well, you know, but, you know, but Branson did something way worse. Like, yeah, I kicked him, but he pushed me. You know, I mean, like, I don't know why that's worse, but okay, you're both guilty. Or then we blame someone else for it. No, it's, it's your fault. It's their fault. It's, they did it. it. How often is our first response to sin repentance? How many times do we wait until we're confronted before we actually repent of sin? Repentance is not just acknowledgement. It's not just saying, yes, I have sinned. It's actually a turning away from sinfulness. It's saying if sin is not an action but it's actually separation from God. It's actually this chasm that exists between me and God. So if I do something, if I have sin in my life, if I have sinfulness that kind of is who I am, it's not just that I've done a bunch of things wrong. It's that I have created this chasm between God and I. And so I am walking towards my own desires. I'm walking towards sinfulness. Repentance says, no, I'm going to turn my back on sinfulness and walk towards God. It's not a call to perfection. There's only one perfect man who's ever lived. His name was Jesus Christ. It's an acknowledgement of imperfection. And it's a willingness not to hide behind it or rationalize it or blame someone else for it. But to turn to the only one who can make it right. To turn to the only one who can cleanse us from it. Who can forgive us from it. Who can take care of the atonement necessary for it. And who has called us into relationship? That's what I take away from the story of David and Bathsheba and David and sin and David and Nathan. That sometimes I'm so caught up in judging other people that I forget my own sinfulness. But here's what Romans 6.23 says to me, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The return on the investment of sin is death every time. But we trick ourselves because we haven't gotten caught speeding that will never get caught until it's too late. And we see the blue lights in the rearview mirror. We trick ourselves into thinking that no one will ever know because all of the men are out to war. But 
God knows. And he's going to send Nathan our way to say, hey, let me tell you a story. And in that moment, you're going to be confronted with the idea that you're guilty, that I'm guilty. We're going to have to send a letter to Joab to cover it up. We're going to bring Uriah home before we even do that to try to make this thing right. We're going to kill an innocent man. Nobody starts out there. It's just where sin leads us so we don't get caught for being on the roof. This is my story. Truth be told, it's your story. That we we want so desperately to play the role of God's defender that we pick up rocks to heave them at others. We forget that our rightful place is down in the dirt next to Jesus as the accused. Every person in this room has something in common. We're all sinners. And so here's what I would say to all of us this morning if you're a sinner, God forgives sin. And the second thing is this. Everyone in here is a sinner. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. It doesn't mean you love God. It doesn't mean you didn't sing earlier. It just means that by our nature, we are compelled and drawn towards a life of sin. For all have fallen short of God's standard for living. All have sinned, right? By Adam, we've read in the book of Romans, by Adam's sin, that one man, we are all guilty, and yet by the sacrifice of Jesus, we are all set free. So all of us this morning have two options of response. God, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. Help me to live in right relationship with you. And everywhere that I turn astray, help me to repent first and foremost and not to hide it, rationalize it, or blame others, but to repent and turn back to you with all of my heart. And secondly, not to be comfortable throwing rocks at others because we think they are more guilty than we are. I want every head bowed and every eye closed just for a moment. As we conclude this time together, if you would say to me today, Jeremy, I I know that I am a sinner. I mean, you just said everybody was, but like, I know that I am. I'm living in ways that are contrary to who God made me to be. I know that I've done things that don't line up with what he wants me to do in ways that honor him. And so today I need to ask God for his forgiveness. I need to repent. If that's you today with nobody looking around, you just want to acknowledge that, I want you to lift your hand right where you're at. Put it right back down. Thank you so much. Lots of hands. Lots of hands today. Let me just assure you that in the same verse that David acknowledged his sinfulness, God forgave him. In the moment that you lifted your hand to acknowledge that, I believe that God forgave you of that. So we're going to pray in just a moment and acknowledge that God is a God of mercy and grace. And secondly today, if you would say, you know what, Jeremy, I am so guilty of throwing rocks. 
I'm so guilty of being like David when he hears that hypothetical story. I judge others so easily for their own sin, and I don't even worry about my own guilt. I just It's easy for me to point at them and lash out at them and scream and yell at them. It's easy for me to judge them in my heart and in my mind, even when I don't say something. And I want God to forgive me of that. I want God to help me to be a person of compassion because of the shared place that I have with those guilty people because I'm guilty just the same. Would you lift your hands? So many hands. We're all that way. God, I pray today for every person in this room, and I pray, God, that you would help us in our response. That, God, today, as we acknowledge our sinfulness, that, God, you receive us. That, God, you forgive us. And so I pray today that you would help us to acknowledge just not only that we're a sinner, but, God, that we're in need of a Savior. God, we need you in our life. It's not enough just to pray a prayer, but God, we need to reorient our lives. We need to transform our hearts around you and who you are. And so God, today, I pray that that's the reality for all of us. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy toward all of us. And God, we thank you for every hand that was lifted of those today who responded to you in that way. And God, secondly, we pray for the group of people that lifted their hand. And I know that there are many others who probably feel the same way. God, we just realize we're, we think we're the judge. We think we're the prophet Nathan for everybody that we know. God, I pray that we would have boldness to speak into the lives of people we have relationship with when we're called by you to do so and confront the sin in their life out of the context of relationship with an eye towards the cross. But God, I also pray that you would help us not to forget our own guilt as we do so. Not to be like the Pharisees who felt like they were the keepers of the law and everyone else was guilty, but God, help us to live in such a way that acknowledges our own sin and our own guilt and we respond with compassion toward those who find themselves in a similar place. God, today I pray that you would help us to be a people on the move in this community who fulfill your commandment to love people unashamedly and that, God, we would live with such authenticity that they know that we're not putting on anything, we're not perfect, but, God, we are pursuing you with our hearts and our lives, and wherever we are in error, we repent first and foremost. God, thank you that I get to be a part of a group of people like that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.